Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you for everything. Thank you for our lives that are marked by your faithfulness, by your kindness, that while we were still sinning, Christ died for the ungodly. That you made us right with yourself, not because of what we've done or our own morality or our own goodness, but because of what you've done, because of your goodness, because of your faithfulness and kindness. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Lord, I ask for help this morning, uh, that you would help me speak clearly, uh, that your word, uh, we know that when it goes forth, uh, that it does not return void. Uh, Your word's going to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish, and we ask, Lord, that the enemy uh, would be silenced, uh, that he would not be able to speak lies in this place, um, but that we would all be able to understand the truth clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So when someone's born, how much do they know? Not very much. They don't know a lot about the world, right? They may be possessors of good parents, of loving siblings, um, a good home, but how much do they know about those things? Not a lot. And it takes time. It takes repetition. It takes being immersed in their family, uh, and they will naturally begin to understand more and more of who they are, who their family is, and what life is like now. And in the same way, when we become Christians, God says that we are born again, meaning we were a certain way, and that old person died with Jesus on the cross, and we were born anew. We were creations of a certain type, and now we are new creations. We have a new heart, a new mind, a new way of living, new thought processes, new emotions, new, new feelings towards the world, and most importantly, a new father. So, when we're born again, how much do we know? For the most part, very little. Something uh, that we know, we know, well, God loves me. And if that's what you understand of the gospel, great, that's awesome. That's a wonderful first step. But we still know very little. There's room for growth. And something I've seen far too commonly uh, in the church at large is that someone will get saved, they will be born again, adopted into God's family, heaven-bound, and be content to stay as a baby, to stay as a spiritual baby, to never grow past that point, knowing nothing and refusing to grow. They will be content to sit around in their diapers being spoon-fed everything for the next 70 years of their lives. They will stay spiritual infants. And what's worse is that those people tend to, uh, as the older and older that they get physically, they are generally esteemed wiser for it. We have a lot of wise, uh, gray-haired people here in the room. But there are people who, as they grow older, they are esteemed wiser for it, and yet spiritually, they've never matured or learned or grown past being a spiritual baby, while demanding the respect and honor of a spiritual adult or a spiritual leader. And that's pride. It comes from pride. Pride is what keeps people like that from growing. It takes humility to say, there's things I don't know yet. There's things that I don't understand yet. It takes humility to say, there's things that others can teach me, even others younger than myself, or even younger others younger in the faith than myself. It's perfectly okay to not know everything. 
Okay, it's perfectly okay to be a baby. We're glad for babies, even even here, physically. If you have a crying baby, please don't run out of the room. We love that your baby is here. When people are born again, we love spiritual babies. We are so glad that you've trusted Jesus, right? It's okay to be a baby. It's perfectly okay. It's okay to not have arrived yet. What's not okay is to feign wisdom or pretend to be wise, to pretend to know everything uh, because someone's too proud to admit to oneself and others that they don't actually know everything. Pride. Pride is what makes this happen because people are scared of being embarrassed or scared of being exposed as not knowing something that they should know. And they will pretend to know and will never grow past that point and they will remain spiritual babies. So number one in your notes said, says, Pride prevents us from learning and growing. Pride prevents us from learning and growing. I have a friend uh, who goes here. Uh, he's about 60 years old. Uh, I think he just turned 60 last year. He's been saved for 18 months, right? A year and a half, not a long time at all. But now he's making up for lost time. He has devoured every theology book that I've given him. He's shared his faith with his friends, his family, uh, people across the counter at stores, uh, with people on the street that he strikes up uh, a conversation with. He's doing the evangelism training that we offer. 18 months. 18 months. He's not too proud to say there's things that I don't know that someone even half my age could teach me. So that's one example of someone uh, with humility. On the other end, I've met others in the church that have been saved for 50, 60, 70 years and will not be taught by anyone. They've never witnessed to a single person. They've never served in any ministry. They've never accomplished a single thing for the kingdom because they never learned how. And they've never learned how, because if they admit that they don't know everything, they're admitting that they're not superhuman and are admitting that they are a baby. It takes admission of that to grow past it. So they never grow past that stage. It takes humility. Number two in your notes. Humility is when we recognize we still have things to learn. Humility is when we recognize we still have things to learn. Which really is just saying, we all have things to learn, right? If you're a hundred years old and you've been studying your entire life, you still have things to learn. In fact, you recognize that there's a lot more that you don't know. It takes recognition of who we are, and pride should theoretically be impossible for Christians. It's not, unfortunately. Uh, Pride should be impossible because every bit of our salvation comes from God as a gift, not from us. Every bit of our salvation comes from God, not from us. He's the one who saves, not us. He's the one who died on the cross in our stead, not us. He's the one that makes us right with himself, not us. He's the one that reconciled us to himself, made us right with him, not us. As the verse said last week, all this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us, the world, to himself, not counting their trespasses against us. When we recognize 
that we are in the place of the undeserving beggar, it should eliminate pride within us. As I said, theoretically, but we struggle with the flesh still, do we not? And that's expected. God understands, God knows that until we're resurrected, we're still going to keep sinning. We're still going to be proud. Philippians 1.6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So there's two options, right? And I put them in your notes so you can look at them. Um, I hope you don't see yourself in the first one. Option one, we stay proud, refuse to humble ourselves, and never learn and never share. That's one option. Plenty of Christians that are heaven-bound stay there. And I'm telling you this now because I don't want you to be there. I don't want you to get to the end of your life and think, I've wasted it. I've wasted all this time. And I think uh, because you're here and because you haven't walked out yet or started cussing me out, you're probably in group number two in your notes says, group two, we humble ourselves, recognize where we are at in terms of spiritual growth, and commit to learning and growing out of love for God and love for others. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That phrase there, no need to be ashamed, that implies that there are people who need to be ashamed, that there are people within the church that have wasted their entire life. You could ask them about what happened at the last GOP debate, or you could ask them about a, some kind of, I don't know, whatever their hobby is, and they know all about that, but you ask them to explain uh, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, which is just salvation, and they have no idea. They're deer in the headlights. And I don't want you to be there. I don't want to be there. We're going to be offering a course uh, called the Foundations Course, uh, which is the title of this message, Foundations Growing in Christ, And it's a course that's going to be available in the fall, winter, and spring of every year. We're not going to do summer because no one shows up to stuff in summer. Um, I get it. There's only three months of sunshine in this state, so we got to get it when we can. So the DC, the uh, discipleship class hours, which is in between this service and next service at about 10.15, we're going to be doing it every year, those semesters every year. Because, one, people are getting saved left and right, and we don't want to leave a spiritual baby on their own, say, well, you got saved, awesome, show up to church, give money, and that's it, right? We don't want to leave someone there. We don't want to leave someone there. But at the same time, there's people who have been saved for a really long time, and you have gaps in your knowledge. That's okay. It's okay to have gaps in your knowledge. It's not okay to pretend that they aren't there. So, if you want a refresher, um, then please come to the course. Ron Comer led uh, this course, this foundations course, last spring, and it was awesome. He did such a good job. Um, I sat in and I watched him because I wanted to learn how he did it and um, take, take things for myself for it. Um, and so he and I are going to be swapping every semester. I'm going to teach it this next uh, one in September 17th through November whatever till we finish. Um, however long the DC classes go for. Uh, and then he'll take over in the spring. So if you come and you think, man, this Brandon guy sure yells at me a lot, 
uh, then maybe go to Ron's class. Or if you go to Ron's class and you think, man, he doesn't yell at me enough, then come to my class. I'll yell at you. So I have a lot of good observations from that class that Ron taught. Uh, first, there was no one under their mid-30s in the class, and the majority of the class were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. The majority of the class were older, right? And you would think with a title like Foundations that they shouldn't be in that class, right? This should be for spiritual babies. One woman said this. She said, I've known Jesus my whole life, but you can never have too strong a foundation. And another uh, person said this. I'm old enough to have forgotten the basics, so it will be good for me to go through this. That's humility. That's being teachable. That's recognizing that we all have gaps in our understanding and our knowledge. And Ron said this in one of his messages. He said, a great coach, a football coach, for example, is great because they focus on the fundamentals. They drill them over and over and over again until it's second nature. You don't have to think about it as much because it is part of you. So... How does that translate to Christianity? When the world comes against you, when Satan comes against you, an unbeliever in their worldview, or even, uh, most deviously, your own flesh comes to you and starts lying to you, telling you lies, trying to get you to believe lies about who you are, about who God is, and about the world, how are you going to combat it? Are you going to be a deer stuck in the headlights just frozen. That first group that I mentioned, when someone raises a question or even an objection to their faith, they tend to get red in the face, angry, defensive, hostile, or start saying persecution, persecution, uh, because they themselves don't know the answer. Or they don't know how to have an adult conversation about real hard things like Christianity. So that's one option. Or the other option is, will you have God's word so deeply implanted in your mind that you are able to answer confidently and competently? That's the whole point of of everything we do here at church. The pastors, the, the worship team, or not worship, yes, actually the worship team, the leadership team, we're here to train you for the work of the ministry, right? We do ministry ourselves, right? People call us ministers, but... The goal is to train you to feel confident and competent. You're the church, not just me, not just Mike standing up here. You're the church. You're the one to be witnessing. And we want you to feel confident, and we want you to feel competent. Number three, we have an enemy who wants to lie about who we are, who God is, and our relationship to him. We have an enemy, just like when we're born, back to that analogy, we need to be protected from outside enemies. Germs, for instance. Those delivering the baby, they use sterile instruments, sterile gloves, to protect from infection, right? Parents choose to not let every single person hold their baby to protect them from those germs. In the same way, we have an enemy who seeks to infect our mind infect our hearts, to change how we view God, to change how we view our relationship to him, and to change how we view the world. And how does this enemy attack? He tells lies. He tells untruths. 
generally small, little lies that only change the truth a tiny, almost indistinguishable amount, but it's enough to lead those who don't know any better astray. And I'm going to show you what I mean in two passages. We're going to go into Genesis 3, and we're going to go into Matthew 4. Genesis 3, 1 through 7 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Where it says serpent, those of us who have read our book, or read the book, have read Revelation, that serpent is the devil, the dragon of Revelation. He said to the woman, did God actually say, did God actually say, are you sure that's what God said? He's not even contradicting God yet. He's just calling it into question. Did God actually say? So he's calling into question God's word. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? For those of us who have read the book, we know that's not what God said. We'll get to that here in just a minute. So, but what's happening? Eve is misunderstanding God's word. She's misapplying God's word. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So what's he doing? First he calls it into question, then he outright contradicts it. You will not surely die. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be in charge. You will be the one making the decision. You will be the one saying, this is right for me, and this is wrong for me. Not God. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. We're going to stay there in that verse for just a second. It says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. There's a parallel passage in 1 John I'm going to pull up here in just a minute. Uh, When she saw that the tree was good for food. What is that? That is the lust of the flesh. Good for food. When it was a delight, or when she saw that it was a delight to the eye, what is that? She desired it. She wanted the thing that God said no to. That is the lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. What is that? That's pride. That is the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. And this is the worst part of the entire passage right here. She, gave, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. What's happening there? The husband has abdicated his role as leader of the family. He has stepped down. He's letting her talk to the serpent. He's not saying, hey, that's not what God actually said. He's not stepping in and interceding for her. He, like men are prone to do, myself included, are abdicating our role as leader. And that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What are they doing there? They are covering their shame by the work of their own hands. They're trying to fashion something together and say, no, 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 I'm good. I'm okay. 
I'm covered. No need to be shamed. I'm, I'm covered. I'm okay. So the parallel passage is uh, 1 John 2 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and pride of life, that the tree was desired to make one wise. All this is not from the Father, but is from the world. So she took it and ate. Let's go back to Adam's mistake here. So Eve and the serpent are talking, and Adam is standing nearby, again, abdicating his role as leader, not correcting Eve's misunderstanding, not correcting her understanding, and letting Satan say and do whatever he wants instead of calling up and calling him a liar. Genesis 3, 2 says, shows, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So is that what God said? No. Is it close? Yes. Very close. Very close. Small twist. Small misunderstanding. But is that what God intended? No. When someone's making calculations, say, to go to the moon, to take a rocket ship to the moon, if they're off by 1%, think of a, uh, I can't think of the term, never mind. (laughs) If they're off by one degree when aiming for the moon, they're going to miss the orbital pull that is going to hold them in the moon's orbit and keep them safe. If they're off by one degree, they're going to go hurtling off into space be lost forever and die. In the same way, misquoting God, the very thing that Satan does, the very thing that Eve does, ends in death. Twisting God's word ends in death. So we can back up to the previous chapter and see what God actually said. It's Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. He didn't say, don't touch it. Do we see that? Do we see how her just little bit of changing has resulted really in in every bad thing that we've experienced? So we see a few things. Go back to verse 16 for me, please. Uh, It says, And the Lord God commanded... The man. Two things we see here. The Lord God. You see how it says capital L-O-R-D? Anytime you see that, it was the scribe's way of giving honor to God by not calling him by his personal name. When you see Lord like that, what it actually says is Yahweh. Yahweh. Uh, that's God's personal name. It's kind of where we get Jehovah uh, from. That's the, the Englishized version of it. Um, Lord God, that means Yahweh. That's his personal name. Um, And since he is my father, I can call him by his personal name. He says so right here. And then it says, commanded who? The man. Commanded the man. Does not say Eve was there. In fact, I could be wrong, but I think uh, that she's not even born yet. She's not even brought about yet. 
but he commanded the man. So the information was given to Adam, and Adam either, one, did not relay the uh, correct information to Eve, and he told her that she can't touch it, or while Satan was standing there tempting her, he didn't step in and correct her misunderstanding, and he didn't call Satan on his lie. Either way, really bad. Either way, Adam failed. Number three, God says, when you eat of it, you will certainly die. People read that and they think, okay, Adam and Eve didn't die. What happened? Did God forget? Did God lie? Is God being a permissive parent, an enabling parent who says, okay, you're going to get punished if you do this. And then the kid does it and they're like, okay, well, I'm not going to hold strict to that boundary. Scholars disagree, uh, big surprise, but here's the conclusion uh, that I find most satisfactory. Two parts. First part, in a sense, they did die. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. Their immortality was stripped for them. When they were removed from the garden, their immortality was removed. They were destined to die. They were removed from pure, untainted fellowship with God, who is life, who's the author of life. They were as good as dead in the sense that death was now coming for them. But that's not exactly what God said, is it? God said, in that day, surely you will die. In the Hebrew, it says, in that day. That day. Very specific. So I think the best answer is this second part. That day, Adam and Eve, by their sin, earned death. Right? The wages of sin is death. When you and I sin, we deserve death. No matter how small we think it is, if God says don't do it and we do it, we've sinned against him, we have earned death like wages. But God, being outside of time, this is a little philosophical, maybe weird for some of us, but you and I are relegated to time. Right? We are born, we have a point A, and we have a point Z at death, right? We, we are relegated to time. Our minds cannot fathom being outside of it, okay? We are time, space, and matter. Because that is all we've experienced, that's all we know. God is outside of space. He's outside of time. He is immaterial, Right? He created those things, so by definition, he is outside of them. So if God is outside of time, if God sees the beginning from the end, not if, God does see the beginning from the end. He is outside of time. So when did Jesus die on God's timeline? For us, he died around the year 33, right? But Revelation thirteen eight calls Jesus this, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. In the Greek, it says, from before the creation of the world. Before the universe was even created, Jesus had already, in God's timeline, in God's economy, had already suffered and died. What happened when Jesus suffered and died? He took the sins of the world, of all who would put their trust in him, put them on Jesus, so that when he died, he suffered the penalty that they, we, deserve. And he gave those people his righteousness. Remember the great exchange from last week. He took our sin. He gave us his righteousness. He took our death. He gave us his life. 
So when God says you will die for doing this, he wasn't lying. Either they die or Jesus dies. Those are the two options. Romans uh, 2, 25 says this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, that just means patience, godly patience, he had passed over former sins. He had passed over. He had not punished right then. His retribution was put off. He had passed over former sins, verse 26. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just, meaning a good, upright judge who does no wrong. He's just in that sin is punished. You see uh, horrible atrocities on the news or wherever. You think, that is awful. How could they do that to someone else? How could they do that to whoever? That is awful. I hate that. It is just that people are punished for sins. It is just that we should die for sins. But God is also the justifier, meaning the one who makes us right with himself. Despite our sin, despite our rebellion, God is the one who offers reconciliation. So he's just in that sin is punished, but he's the justifier in that he offers you pardon freely. So we see how Satan was using Adam and Eve's misunderstandings, using falsehood and lies to not only destroy their lives, but your life. Because you are in the line of Adam, you have inherited that sin. Not that you are responsible for his sin, you're responsible for yours. But our sin is what makes this world so awful, is it not? Like I said last week, it's not always awful. I'm not that big of a pessimist. So the parallel passage that we see is Matthew 4. We're going to go to that now. Genesis 3, Matthew 4. You can remember those and go do your own uh, Bible study on it, hopefully. Verse 1 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. We're going to pause real fast. So what's happening? Verse 2 says that he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I know some people in this room who have fasted for 21 days. Um, I know a guy who I think comes to next service fasted for 38 um, and couldn't make it past that. Uh, So I know that there's people here who fast, even if it's one day. Awesome. Good job. Proud of you. But... 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. Is that an understatement or what? Anyone here get hangry? I don't know. I haven't made it to 40 days, but I can imagine Jesus is not too pleased that Satan's coming in and trying to rain on his parade. So he's in a weakened state. He's he's hard-pressed on every side. And then verse 3 says, And the tempter... Who is that? That's the serpent. That's the dragon. That is the devil. That is Satan. The tempter came to him and said, what does he say? If, if you are the son of God, what's he doing? Same thing as in Genesis 3. He's calling into question God's word. He's not even outright uh, contradicting it. He's just calling it into question. 
just a little bit. If you are the Son of God, are you? Are you really? Then command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered him, Okay, this, the whole message, this is what I want us to understand. How does Jesus answer? It is written. He refers back to the rock-solid Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God incarnate, right? He is the, the logos, the, the essence of God. He, we hold that he is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And how does he refer? He doesn't answer him with his own words. He says, it is written. This is what God has communicated beforehand. Man, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Okay, this is going to blow your mind. For it is written. Who's the one quoting scripture here? Satan! Is that insane? Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus to mislead Jesus. How old are you? You're probably, I mean, we're all under 100 in here. That's a safe bet, right? We're all under 100. We've only had X amount of time. I've only been saved for like 15 years. I've only had that amount of time to understand and study the Bible. And I know a fraction, barely anything, right? How long has Satan had to understand the Bible? Right here, he has it memorized, or he has this part of it memorized. He's had 2,000 years since then. Do we think that he knows the Bible better than we do? I think so. So, not only is he quoting scripture, but what else is he doing? Misusing it. Twisting it just a tiny little bit. He's trying to make it seem as if something is contradictory. He's trying to pit God against God. He's trying to pit God against the truth. God is the truth. He's the author of truth. So, verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, verse 7, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord God to, your test, or to the test. Verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. So there's numerous passages, most of the Old Testament actually, is all referencing something in Jesus' life. With Adam and Eve, we see Adam and Eve tempted. We see them fail. Then we see the parallel passage here, Matthew 4. We see Jesus tempted in the same way, and he succeeds. Then, the whole story of Israel is of epic, massive, heartbreaking failure. I don't even like reading the book of Judges. When, when, when Pastor Mike told me he was doing a sermon series on Judges, I was like, ugh, I hate reading Judges. 
Because it says what? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's where we hear of all the, like some of the most horrific things in the Bible are in the book of Judges. Horrible things. Israel, tempted, failed. Jesus, tempted in the same way, succeeding. Then you look at our lives. What do you see? We failed. If you've sinned once, you've become a lawbreaker, is what the word says. We have failed. But what do we see? Jesus succeeding on our behalf, succeeding for us. So we see in this passage again, Jesus is hard-pressed on every side. He's hungry, probably tired. He's in the desert, not very comfortable. And the enemy is right there waiting for him to slip, waiting for him to fall, waiting for him to make a mistake. Just like you and I now, if you're on team Jesus, Satan's coming after you. If you're not on team Jesus, Satan's going to let you do whatever you want because you're not a threat to him. You're not a threat to his kingdom. But for us who are Christians, we are getting the snot kicked out of us constantly. I see the prayer letter. I see what's happening in your guys' lives. I know that there's hard things happening in your lives. And Satan is trying to exploit those things to make us fall, to make us slip. So, should we decide to take the route of Jesus, what he took, we will quote God's word back to those problems. We will quote God's immutable, infallible words back to those problems and back to the lies. Number four in your notes says, we win by resorting to God's word. just want to point something out. If Christ, being God incarnate, deemed it necessary to battle Satan this way by quoting, it is written, by quoting scripture, how much more do we need to do it that way? So this class that I mentioned, the foundations class, we're going to be offering it every semester. Uh, we want everyone to go through it at some point. This is, this is not just me saying this. This is Mike. I talked to Pastor Mike. He said, I want everyone to go through this class at some point. That's why we're going to offer it again and again and again. We want you to feel confident and competent wielding the sword of truth, the word of God, in the battle against the father of lies. When Satan comes to you, how are you going to answer? Maybe maybe not everyone has this inner monologue like I do, um, that's, or even, even I don't know if it's demon, Satan, whoever whispering lies to us, I don't know. But when he comes to you and he says, you don't think you're saved and your sins are forgiven just by believing and receiving Christ, do you? Surely that's not enough. How are you going to answer? Are you prepared? Are you equipped to answer? Do you feel confident in that? I hope so. I know a lot of you are, but I know some of us aren't. Again, it's okay. It's okay to not know everything. It's not okay to stay there. That objection, the, are you saved? Really? Satan coming to you and saying that. We answer that um, in the first lesson in Foundations. It's called Assurance of Salvation. Or Satan comes to you and he says this. Surely you don't think that God is personally interested in you. 
He's far away. He's concerned about more important things. You don't think that he'll hear you and answer your prayers, do you? We answer that in the second lesson, assurance of answered prayer. And then he'll say this, sure, maybe you have life, maybe you're saved, but you're a weakling. You've always been a weakling. You won't be able to stand against this temptation. You've stood against others, but not this one. We answer that in the third lesson, assurance of victory. And then, if you're like the rest of us, you sin. And then he says to you, now you've done it. Aren't you supposed to be a Christian? Christians don't do those things. Maybe this time, God will walk out on you. We answer that in chapter 4, assurance of forgiveness. So our goal as church leadership in offering this course or this uh, this semester this course semester after semester is to arm you to give you the tools that you need to stave off the attacks of the enemy to prevent you from falling prey to his lies at the end of that passage we saw that Jesus said be gone satan for it is written and that leads us to number 5 on our notes James 4 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Last thing I want to say about the course is that people came in, they did one lesson, and they said, Hey, do you have any more of those books? I have someone that I think wants to go through this, or would want to go through this. There's four different Bible studies that have, that have propped up with people who are young, baby Christians that are now going through this, arming themselves, learning how to answer Satan when he attacks us this way, just because they came to that course and we said, yep, here's the books. Take it and go walk through it with them. It's very simple, uh, very easy to use. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that you didn't leave us alone. You didn't leave us helpless. Uh, not only have you given us the word, but you've come to live inside of us. Uh, you said that you're always with us to the end of the age. You say that you're always inside of us. That we are a temple for the Holy Spirit. Uh, that you personally, Jesus, live inside of our hearts. Thank you that you haven't left us alone. That, you, that we weren't just born and you didn't leave us on the sidewalk to fend for ourselves. That you're here fighting for us. Thank you for everything. Lord, I ask that uh, you would teach us truth, prevent lies from taking hold. In Jesus' name, amen.